0: Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. How does one keep a band together for 23 years? How does one make music in a genre that demands authenticity when that person has, you know, lived in parts of the world that don't ring true with the demographic targeted by that type of music? How does one continue to create in a world that can be so... Problematic, you know, difficult, tricky. Catch Secor, founding member of Old Crow Medicine Show, has kept his band together for 23 years. He's gotten all sorts of awards, Grammys, uh, inducted into the Grand Ole Opry, um, made tons of great records that have sold a lot of copies, had hit songs. But every day he wakes up and he tries to go through the what he describes as difficult process of writing songs because it's what he does, because he believes in the value of it. I really enjoyed getting to talk with him. I've kept an eye on his band, not just because our albums are always alphabetically linked, but because I admire the music he makes. I admire the work he does. I admire the person that he is out in the world, working hard, putting his money where his mouth is. Anyway, I think the world of catch Secor, core and I'm so glad that, that I got to have him um, on this newest episode of Wheels Off. I, there were some audio issues on the recording on my end. There, he, they may be able to send in a, a cleaner version. Uh, but if not, you may hear a little bit of um, you know, audio disturbance. I think it's not too bad. Everybody at this point is used to it, the choppiness of the digital world that we live in, which is ironic considering the sort of uh, down-home banjo and fiddle music that Ketch is famous for. Regardless, I think you're going to love this conversation. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Ketch Secor. Thank you so much for joining me. This is great.
2: Thanks, Red. Really glad to be here. I got to tell you, we listened to a lot of old 97s music in the car when we were in the car and not on on the bus. And so, our infancy of the band, you all were a premiere soundtrack for us. Thanks.
1: (laughs) Were you just confused because of the names being so close to one another?
2: Yeah, I just figured, (laughs) you know.
1: It's, hey, I didn't really, I don't remember putting out this record, but it sounds great. Uh, for the edification of our listeners where are you joining us from i'm here in nashville tennessee nice and that's home base for you now right somewhere around there
2: yeah we've lived in nashville i've i've lived here i guess about 20 years or something so Uh, it's home i've lived here longer than anywhere i ever lived and i lived in a bunch of places
1: yeah never um congrats on the new record but i wonder if um if just promoting it is what you're working on now or if there is uh is there a creative project that you're working on now that's lighting you up? What is it?
2: Oh my gosh, I've got a lot of plates spinning right now, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of projects are lighting me up. Um, one of them, some of them, are just little things to keep my my brain activated, and and I, I feel like as a, a as a artist in times like these, if you don't have a project going on um, in response to the, the weights of the world, then you're probably on drugs or diluted in some way, um, or just not living up to your potential because there are many things to be singing about right now, in addition to promoting your album and, you know, being in your 23 year old band. But those of us who are, you know, artists in our heart, um, have, have to reckon a whole world of, um, A wrongdoing out there that uh, you gotta you gotta find you gotta make time for you know you can't just like go in line at the Kroger and keep checking out and keep checking out Um, you gotta do those things we all do I got kids I live in a town I got you know bills to pay you know clean up the dog shit in the backyard stuff Um, but uh, I gotta keep activated or else I'll just get depressed and um, my my I feel a powerful heart. Um, An empathy for the for my brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now. I know that the past three and a half weeks have been a living hell for them. But I know that that living hell is not limited to that region in the world. That there are other regions in the world experiencing and having long experienced um, you know uh, terror, uh, and some of it is you know with different political parties or different countries or different. Names on the bombs, but there's they're raining, uh, and so there's a lot to sing about, and it it makes your heart heavy. Um, but I'm trying to lighten the load by you know listening.
1: God, you, you just used um a intentional or a double uh double entendre. I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional, but I loved it so much. The idea of consumerism as this deadening thing, like you're standing in line at Kroger checking out, and at the same time, like you're like checking out of the world. Yeah, well done well done you should think about being a songwriter oh
2: maybe i will
1: (laughs) um well it feels like with the new record like you're really tackling this stuff head-on issues of race and and the the political situation around the world and in our country and freaking bravo man it's it's hard it's hard to do that a lot of people find it easier just to you know ignore it and well done
2: well, thanks. You know, it's it's important work, and and I'm only trying to do as well as I learned from, you know, John Prine, Bob Dylan, as you probably did, and whoever your influences are, which are probably similar to mine. Um, you know, Johnny Cash was the man in black, and that's a political statement. That's yeah. not that's not marketing. Yeah.
1: I know. It's funny. I was thinking about that before we got on. You and I um, both used the least marketable adjective in our band names. Old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not mar- not marketing. That's our specialty. Not marketing.
2: <laughs> How many times Rhett, have you had somebody come up to you at the show and be like, I thought it was going to be a bunch of old men.
1: Yeah. Young so young. I remember sitting in the room at Electra for the first time and having them go, could we just go? Ninety sevens or new ninety (laughs) sevens. Like, sadly, this is who we are. Oh, man. Um, I love that. So I like I wonder for you growing up, uh, did you always know this is what you were going to do? Were you making music from a really young age? Do you remember an epiphany moment where a light bulb turned on and you realized you were going to be a songwriter entertainer?
2: I figured that at about you know ten or eleven that I was going to be a, okay. I was going to write something and I was going to perform something. I wasn't quite sure if I would be in plays or um, if I wanted to be in on TV or in movies uh, or if I wanted to be on the radio because I sure listened to a lot of radio as a kid. Uh, I was really um, enamored by um, Garrison Keillor. I figured he was a relative. You know, in my young mind and and just like I figured Michael Jackson lived in St. Louis like me, you know, I didn't think that there was anywhere else. Surely he lived in like one of the nice parts of town and all of those songs were about being six in St. Louis. Um. So I felt, you know, certainly a calling to be in in the arts from a young age. And I was like, I I felt ignited politically as a kid. I was really, you know, interested in, I I like to have debates and talking about politics. I always thought it was so odd that, that my mom seemed like the only person that voted for Mondale. And I knew that that made me different, that my mom voted for the loser, you know, so I just felt like a sponge soaking it all up, and then the the bit defining aspect of my life was that we moved around so much. I lived in five states by the fifth grade, wow. and most of them in some southern places. So those were uh, kind of part of my my internal gumbo.
1: And then you wound up at school in the Northeast, right?
2: Yeah, and then I took all that up to this, um, you know, intellectual hotbed of um of uh at this place called Phillips Exeter Academy, which was uh, a which is a you know the same it's the same school that that Abraham Lincoln sent his kids. <laughs> I got a scholarship from the Reader's Digest magazine to oh go up God. there.
1: That's incredible. And, uh,
2: you know, I walked out of high school with, you know, um the 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 three things that I probably needed to survive. Um a, a girlfriend, a banjo, and a hit song. <laughs>
1: um did you ever see an alternate road because i mean you went you went ahead and went to college too right did you get a degree
2: no no i didn't um i decided not to i um i i didn't go for the first year out of high school and then i did sort of accidentally the second year out of high school (laughs) that so i went for one year um to a college in in new york state where i was You know, I I learned that there was more old time music being played outside of where I grew up in the South than there was, you know, I mean, I probably could have moved to North Carolina, but I moved to Ithaca because to me, that was, you know, um, an appropriately named heavenly place for old time music. In Ithaca, the fiddler was the one getting laid, not the guitarist. I
1: love that. Oh my God! That's I wonder. I've wondered about that before myself because, like, I grew up in. This is not about me. Sorry, but I grew up in Dallas, uh, and I didn't want to do country music because that was what all the rednecks who were beating me up were listening to. But in the north, maybe what you're saying is it's just a little safer because you don't have that same dynamic.
2: Totally the same. All of the rednecks I grew up listened to country. Well, I, you know, actually, a lot of them listened to rap. Yeah. Um, uh, there in the early 90s, there, that, there was that thing that was happening that, you know, we've really seen the fruit of in the newer generation. Um, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, country music was not my, but, but, you know, I listened to a lot of folk music and so that, because my parents, you know, were like old hippies types. Um, not really, they were, they wore too much, um, you know brooks brothers to actually qualify as old hippies but they were teachers my parents are teachers and we lived in all these different towns because they kept getting different jobs in 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 elementary schools um and so i grew up listening to the folk music of the 1960s my mom's music because you know she thought the kingston trio were really great and so i grew up thinking they were really great too uh and when I moved north out of high school, you know, when I moved north to go to high school, I learned that my southernness was actually a kind of, um, um, you know, a diversity or a, um, you know, a, a cultural identity that was in the minority uh, and was something to be celebrated and and gave me a kind of credibility and authenticity that even in my hometown, like I wasn't credibly country. But when I moved to New England, I was like, just off the tractor, man.
1: <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. I grew up King, a Kingston Trio kid as well. It's funny. They're, they're not well-remembered. They seem pretty square in retrospect, but some great records and songs and harmonies, right?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I, I know that that has a lot to do with how to dress and sing. You know, and Bob Dylan really came and, and slayed all that just, like, you know, tore the mantle in the temple, so to speak, ripped it all down the middle and, you know, went out and slept with the prostitutes, you know, through what's I'm trying to think of that line in the Bible when he he throws out the um um the Pharisees. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, the Kingston Trio sort of and and really the entire folk music movement of the late 50s and early 60s, which at its time was you know, one of the most popular formats in the world and really, really powerful. I mean, you know, they gave the keys to Dylan and he decided to drive it over the cliff immediately. And, (laughs) um, and that was, you know, the shot heard around the world. It was beautifully rock and roll and, 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 a kind of destiny that only Dylan could, um, could, could drive. Um, but, uh, there were a lot of, um, you know, unnecessarily unnecessary burnt fuselages uh in the in that wake and phil oaks is one of them and tom paxton is one of them malvina reynolds you know musicians who really contributed and allowed for dylan to take it um but then were you know scarred by the um the afterburn of that rocket of bob
1: yeah yeah and it's funny because the spirit of those a lot of those songwriters was so, you know, so incredibly, you know, uh, transformational. And I mean, it really was a lot of what you hear in punk rock, right? Tear the world down.
2: Yeah, totally. Top of songs, you know, songs about walking across the Pettit Bridge in Selma, Alabama, songs about Bull Connor opening up a fire hydrant and his dog pissing on you or his dog teeth around your head, you know, songs about four little girls in Birmingham, you know, powerful songs. Um, And Dylan, Dylan was able to just do it more powerfully, more apocryphally, um, and, you know, uh, more magically than anybody could do it before. And, you know, uh, and I'm the biggest Bob Dylan devotee. um, But, uh, and I don't think he ever did it like to be harmful to people but um it's so american that there can only be one yeah you know it's like there's jackie robinson but who really broke the color line i mean there's you know dozens of people who contributed it to but america only wants to hang one sash there can only be one winner of miss mid-south livestock america <laughs> you know only one smile is going to get the the cover shot
1: the Colgate Award. Um, so you've brought up Dylan a few times, and I know you've got the uh, a song that you guys co-wrote, which was, was that sort of an after-the-fact co-write, where you wrote it and took it to him and got his blessing?
2: Yeah, yeah. About 25 years between the pen strokes. Isn't that so funny?
1: Yeah. we. I had a, a Dylan co-write that was the same thing, a song called Champagne, Illinois, that I took desolation row and rewrote the lyrics and eventually 15 years later got him to sign off on it have you ever gotten to meet him no me neither you? no but we're co-write we're co-writers <laughs> you, know, you and i are eskimo brothers through bob dylan yeah <laughs> um so Ketch, I wonder for you because I mean I I really admire the longevity of your career, the depth of your passion, and the way you've always seemed to put your money where your mouth is. And you work really hard, and um, and you've been able to do this and and make you know a great body of work over these years. And I wonder for you, um, I imagine because I haven't spoken to anyone that has answered this no, that that you come up on some internally generated obstacles. You know that you have self-doubt, imposter syndrome, anxiety, success, guilt, you know, whatever. There's a long list of things that people who create for a living wind up uh, running up against in their own brains uh, that keep them from doing what they want to do. And I just wonder for you, what have you figured out as a way to get through that, a way to get around those self-generated obstacles?
2: Uh, well, thanks for that. That's a really great question. i um, not wanting to get too um, um, armchair therapized here, Anya. I don't have any Kleenex nearby, so um, I'm not going to give you the long answer. But um, um, I, I feel that music has kept my heart really uh, beaten fast and youthful. I feel real young in my spirit. I feel real... I still feel like a student um, even though I'm 44 next month uh, and that's not the age of a student. That's maybe German working on, you know, Meister um, to put it in beer label terms. Um, I was uh, a student when I started, I feel like a student today and my, my hunger for uh, In on this journey of American song and the life that goes along with having that be your pole star, um, it, uh, has it's kind of worked out pretty good because it it never seems to give up like the the wellspring keeps bubbling and the you know and drinking from it keeps being vicious, uh, life affirming, sustaining, salubrious, just fucking great water fountain youth stuff yeah so i'm just just guzzling it and yeah but i get you know i feel doubtful or like what gives you the authority because you know like i might sing like on our new album we got a song about um the state of appalachia right and you know i've spent 20 years crisscrossing this region of the country i sing music that from it that i know how to I know I've been putting snake rattles in my violin since I was 17 years old. And when I do it, it there's a prayer, there's an incantation. I, I'm breathing it in. I feel like, you know, when I sing these songs, my eyes close, I'm trying to, um, it's a conjuring as much as it is a, a performance and it isn't conjuring a performance anyway. And isn't, you know, for me, just, you know what, I'm basically a, a preacher uh, and that doesn't mean that I'm not a sinner. I might be the biggest sinner out there. You know, like I watched a lot of televangelism when I was a kid. I loved it. I thought it was the most entertaining channel out there because it was real and fake instead of just fake. Um, and so anyway, I think the your question there read about um, who has about imposter syndrome. I, I think it's this question of, do I have the authority to tell a country music story when I went to prep school and my mother voted Walter Mondale and, you know, um, I drink kombucha. Um, does that mean that, that I don't know the value of a Hardy's biscuit uh, that I can't name 12 NASCAR drivers? I can only name eight. Do I, do I not pass loyalty oath to, to, you know, exemplify a country lifestyle? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know who does. I know that I live in a town where who makes country music no longer uh, lives in a life folk pathway that Johnny Cash did. Like Johnny Cash grew up with the choice of picking cotton or not picking cotton. Um, You know, I challenge any anybody on the radio today to point to that choice and that and that fork in their road. Nobody has it. I don't have it. You don't have it nobody who authenticates country music professionally has that choice and yet we're all here saying listen to us man listen to our new song so we're all fucking imposters
1: <laughs> boy i love that you brought up the the idea of authenticity it comes up a lot in in these conversations but even just in backstages of my life right because there's always a critic or a fan or somebody who's who's you know wants to point at us and say well you're not what you claim to be or whatever and that's just a shitty feeling and and I think you just answered it as good as anybody I've ever heard answer it so thank you I'll steal that answer
2: See if you can consolidate it put it on a bus (laughs)
1: um all right. So I'm wondering, I feel like you are a font of wisdom and you've shared a lot of it today. And I'm wondering if uh, you would mind trying to consolidate it a little bit in imagining running into a version of yourself, a 21-year-old version of Ketch who's walking around in today's world. What advice might you give 21-year-old you?
2: Oh, I would just tell him to stop worrying. Now I'm going to need my Kleenex. (laughs) Yeah. I just took it all so hard, man. It just, it was quite painstaking. There was a lot of agony uh, in the infancy of, you know, coming from the street corner to trying to get gigs, staying up all night. Um, The interpersonal strife of a band of brothers who, you know, you wouldn't, pick out of a lineup to go live your life with but suddenly through the twists of turns of your teenage years that's who you got that's your bad news bears now go win the pennant kid (laughs) you know i mean i i think i really struggled with interpersonal conflict with my bandmates Um, it was it was really painful Um, and and for a while felt traumatizing um, as I worked out of it and through it and changed it. And now I'm in a 23-year-old band where I, you know, the the very things that I resented and, and feared most about the first 10 years of it, now I embrace, you know, like those guys that, that um, I struggled to get along with in the beginning of the band are now great friends. Uh, and I've pushed through all of those differences and we've all grown and changed. So I would definitely tell that kid, you know, just try and enjoy it. There's so many things that I couldn't enjoy in the first 10 years of being a professional musician because I was just too stressed out. You know, like I'd love to go back and tap on that guy's shoulder and say, that's Emmy Lou. You're gonna sing with her. Just love the moment. That's that's Loretta Lynn. She's about to, she's about to be in your presence. You're about to be in hers. You know, just float. Don't, don't be thinking about how you're scared to get in a van tonight and go drive 600 miles for $300. That's Loretta. That's the only time you're ever going to know her.
1: Ah, that's beautiful. It's real, that's really a testament to the, the importance of presence. And, and when we're young, it's, it's so elusive, right? Being present in the moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I struggle with it even now, but I'm a lot better at it. And about not sweating the small stuff, uh, and being present for, and you know, even all of the things that I wasn't present for, I know they happened, <laughs> and I visit upon them. I can go into that space and be a fly on the wall and know what dress they were wearing, and you know, I see that see that sheepish look on my face and know that that was just my way of of uh, trying to understand it and be present. I was trying to be present then too
1: uh being a kid is hard it's so much easier in some ways now isn't it
2: yeah having the um having the hindsight to know to having enough years built up to know how to do it differently um, and being a lot less reactive now uh, at um, in my forties than I, than I could be in my twenties when just the volatility of the time of you know a band about to break but um you know never breaking i mean and and like the physicality of it breaking yeah. you know like eclipses and big bangs i mean they're not there's a lot of fire that goes into that it's like when the earth trembles that's not a good thing
1: <laughs> i'll I'll ask you this i don't normally ask but the, you and i uh, I feel like are probably the get asked this question more than a lot of people. Um, the, if you had to point at a secret for keeping a band together for over two decades, what would you say? Uh,
2: uh, I, For me, the secret is, is the audience and what the audience's expectation of the band is and keeping it close to that expectation expectation, even in even in the wild um, delineation or uh, in, in the wild splitting away from the path. Um, e- even when you take a sharp turn, you still have to face the crowd. You still have to do it for your audience. I write every song um, with my own passion and experience, but I try and write it knowing that it's for them, that I'm supposed to give it, lay it at their feet. I hope they'll like it every song feels like a gift for somebody else and 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 because songwriting is so um actually unpleasant painful like like you know the procreative manner of cats like they don't like it it hurts um but they gotta do it to you know keep species going and that's the you know making new records going through (laughs) the endurance of the band i mean it always fit that I was always like kind of doing for the audience. Anyway, like I just put a lot of stock in the crowd. I really want the crowd to have a good time. That's my kind of my secret on entertainment, regardless of if I was in a band 23 years or two years, or, you know, last week I was out on the road, opening up a show for, I was out with Molly Tuttle and I was opening and I haven't been an opener in a really long time as a solo performer. I don't know if I've ever done that. Uh, and it was so great to, to feel again, that what I really care about is given the audience, no matter if I got any production or any songs you ever heard before, or if it's all new material and it's just me on a banjo, that it's all about trying to share a moment with a crowd and, and slow down the world so that what's past those doors doesn't really matter. We're all here together, and we're all as one. It's the you know preacher and congregation bit.
1: Boy, I love that.
2: It's it comes up a
1: lot on these uh, conversations. The idea of when you're making something, if it's calculated to try and be what the audience wants or whatever, like the, that that ends up being problematic. The result is never as good as if you just created something that was honest. But the way you just put it is thinking of it, realizing that what you're making is a gift to the audience that's beautiful because then it lets them be a part of it without you trying to figure out a way to just steal their money or whatever, you know?
2: And so it seems a lot purer. That's the reciprocity of it. You know, they're going to give you their money and their attention. Um, They're going to, you know, some of them might name their kids after you. Some of them are going to get married to your songs and and buried to your songs. Yeah, I mean, that that happens in a 23 year old Mm -hmm. band. I know a number of people who left, who shook their mortal coil to an old Crow song. I get messages from people who say, oh, I listened to your songs before I went in on a combat mission and killed people. You know, when you're when you're real close to people through your artistic medium and it's, you know, you're not doing that from like a radio format or uh, it's very you know, one campfire at a time, it's very, a signal fire being passed. It feels very spiritual. Yeah. It's close. It's not, it's not because, you know, um, a, a YouTube algorithm um, or, um, or a social media pos- suggestion, because you like this, you'll like this. Um, rather, there's always feels like there's a divinity in the way that the word has spread, you know, word of mouth. Yeah.
1: God, I love that. Um, I feel like I could talk to you all day. I really appreciate the time you've given me and the audience here. And um, I just, I I think the world of you, I hope our paths cross soon in real life. And thank you so much for being on wheels off today, catch.
2: Thanks, Rhett. And, um, Thanks for uh, giving, our, um, giving our band such a great soundtrack, uh, especially in, in O2 when we were <laughs> trying to figure out if we were going to make that extra 18 miles to the you know cheaper gas across the state line. <laughs> Woo! You're welcome. All right. You listened to the old 97s and it saved us a dollar at the pump every time.
1: <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off.
0: Cyrus. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having
2: a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.